noticed one out there who is spreading joy to see her grandfather again. <laughs> okay, our speaker this morning is Tom Emmons. Uh, Tom and Rhonda have been a blessing to us since they uh, started coming here. And uh, Tom gladly accepted the, the challenge, if you will, to bring us a message this morning. Uh, Tom has been a missionary in Thailand, and he's also been a pastor. So uh, we're anxious to hear uh, about Psalm 47. Tom? Technically, it's Psalm 147, but uh, you might, I don't know if you caught that or not. It's not. <laughs> uh, for the amount of time that we have been here, a short period of time, maybe four and a half, five months, something like that, uh, this church has been an incredible blessing to our lives. And I just want you to know that. Um, something special about this church. And uh, we're extremely thankful for that. But when I was asked by George and David to preach, I did not, they did not tell me that Drake would be here, our pastor. <laughs> I, no. That's kind of a dirty pull there, you know, but uh, hey, <laughs> talk about intimidating, my word. Uh, <laughs> this morning we are going to look at Psalm 147, but before I do, I, I would ask if, if you would just join with, with me in a, uh, just a quick word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for the day you've given us, and um, Lord, I pray that right now in this moment um, that we're able to just set aside um, uh, ourselves, really, and the uh, worries and concerns we have so that we can truly see your splendor, uh, your goodness, your greatness. Um, and we could see how good it is, Lord, for our, your people to, uh, to lift you up, to praise you, to put the spotlight on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 147. And it's really, really odd because in my notes it says 146. I'm, I must be really confused. It's 147, verses 1 through 6. Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6. As you're turning to that, let me go ahead and uh, read that for us. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says, for it is good to sing praises to our God. Yes, indeed, praise is pleasant and it's appropriate, fitting. The Lord builds, rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He names all of them. Our Lord is great and has awesome power. There is no limit to his wisdom. The Lord lifts up the oppressed, but he knocks down the wicked to the ground. You know, I think there is... Um, there's a danger in reading scripture. Well, I guess there's multiple dangers. I mean, you know, while reading scripture, we frequently get our proverbial toes stepped on, you know, fairly firmly. I mean, that happens all the time. But I'm thinking of a different danger. Um, it's the danger of familiarity. I mean, we're so familiar with scripture that oftentimes we'll just kind of read through it rather quickly and not spend a whole lot of time really thinking about it, right? I mean, it's, it's great that we're familiar with scripture. But there is a caution there as well. I think sometimes too much familiarity leads to thoughtlessness. Not really thinking deeply about the text that we're reading, the words of God. And I think that this first word of this psalm, praise, may be one of those words we're really familiar with. And we just kind of like to read through it rather quickly and don't have to give it much thought because it's kind of like a habit, right? It's kind of like tying your shoes. It's not necessary to think 
that deeply of the word because we know it. We say it all the time. We, we go past it. But the problem with words that's not really necessary to think much about is, well, we just don't give them much thought, right? And I think the effect of that is that they stop having a profound effect on us. And that would be a shame, wouldn't it? God's word should always have a profound effect on us. And so I think it would be, might be good this morning for us to carefully consider this word praise, um, especially because we're so familiar with it. So we're going to kind of soak in this word. I mean, not soak it in, but soak in it, the word praise, and what it means and what are some of its implications, this call to praise the Lord. Well, Psalm 147 is what is called a Hallel Psalm, a praise psalm from the word Halal. It's to praise God, right? Hallelujah. And there are um, just kind of, if you really wanted to know this, I don't know, but there are three collections or classifications of Hallel Psalms in the Bible. There's Psalms 146 to 150 is the concluding Hallel Psalms. So you've got the Egyptian, you've got the great, you've got the concluding. Psalm 147 is one of the concluding ones. And there's some uh, characteristic features of these concluding praise psalms. They all begin and end with this phrase, praise the Lord, hallelujah. And they were used in, uh, in Israel's history, they were used in the daily prayers in the synagogue as right after the temple was destroyed in AD 70. But let's think about this psalm for a minute in its contour. How, how would you outline a psalm? Sometimes psalms are difficult to outline. You either have to think through structurally or maybe through thematically. But this one I think is structured fairly easily in that it has a, uh, uh, an exhortation to praise the Lord, and then it gives us reasons. And then in verse 7, there's another exhortation to praise the Lord, and then it gives us some more reasons. And then in verse 12, again, an exhortation to praise the Lord, and then reasons. So that's how you would outline this, three exhortations followed by the reasons for the exhortation. And then you have the bookends, praise the Lord at the beginning and praise the Lord at the end. So the psalm begins with this exhortation, praise the Lord, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And then in the next, very next line, the psalm gives us three reasons for praising the Lord because it's good, it's pleasant, and it's appropriate, it's fitting. Now, I don't know, this may just be my strange way of thinking, but when I read that at first, I thought, do we really need reasons to praise God? I mean, he's God, right? We just praise him because he is, but that statement I just made is a reason, isn't it? It kind of states a reason. You can't really get around not having a reason or having a reason for praising God. But think about it a little bit deeper. Do we need reasons for praising God? I think we do. And there are at least, probably multiple ones, but at least three reasons why we need reasons to praise God. First of all, having reasons to praise God gives our praise meaning. Think about it. If we didn't have any reasons and we think through the reasons to praise God, our praise would kind of be meaningless, wouldn't it? And we need reasons because I think reasons give our praise depth and authenticity. Think about it. If you're thinking about the reasons for praising God, then you are thinking about the God who you are praising. And thinking about Him and the reason to praise Him, I think just drives our praise deeper. It gives us profound praise, passionate praise for who He is. And then I think a third reason is simply that uh, it kind of sets our praise apart. When we think about and dig into the reasons for praising God, it shows us how unique our praise is of God compared to praise of any other thing, right? It, it sets our adoration of God apart from 
and above any other thing we might adore. So I think, yeah, we do need reasons to praise God. In the first verse of the psalm, he gives us three of them. Uh, but I want you to, before, I'm going to get into those three in just a minute, but I want you to think for a minute about this praise the Lord. There's many different words in the, in the Old Testament that are related to praise and to worshiping God. And you're going to find them in combinations with other words like this, praise the Lord for it is good, right? Because it is good. There are combinations, though, that you will never see in the Old Testament. You'll never see in the Bible. Praise the Lord. You'll never hear praise the Lord unless. Right? Praise the Lord if. Those are, those are combinations you will never see in the Old Testament. Why? Because the Bible never gives us an exemption. There is no biblical waiver for praising God. There's no situation we could be in where we might be not expected to praise our God. In fact, the Psalms many times tell us to praise despite maybe horrible circumstances we might be in. So there's no exemption to praise God for, it's not an option for believers. We must praise God. Now, let's soak in this word praise for a while. Let's take some time to thoughtfully consider its meaning and its some, maybe some of its implications. Well, this is the, the familiar word, right? The familiar phrase, praise the Lord. And it is a phrase. I think English, we've made it a word, right? But it's hallelujah. I mean, hallelujah, it's the verb to praise, right? It's kind of the imperative form. It's, it's exhorting you praise. Yah is the shortened form of Yahweh, right? Of God, the name by which he revealed himself to be the, the self-existent God, the, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. And what is the basic meaning of this word, halal, to praise? It's to shine. Kind of like putting a spotlight on something. And then later it came to be known to, to boast in somebody or boast about someone. But putting the spotlight on God, that's the call of this psalm, is for us to put the spotlight on God, to boast in God. What do you put a spotlight on? You put a spotlight on things that uh, you want someone else to see, right? That you want them to put their attention on. Uh, Rhonda and I go to... Uh, these series of concerts in Terrell here. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, the E-Terrell series. Uh, they bring performers in, you know, once a month, and we go to watch them. Some of them are good, some of them, eh, you know, not, not so great. But, well, they're all good technically, but some of the lyrics, you know. But anyway, uh, every, every one of these concerts, as the performer's about to get on the stage, what happens? The lights dim, and from back behind us, this spotlight comes and hits right on center stage. Why? That's where the performer's going to be, Right? That's where they want us to, first of all, shut our mouth, stop talking because everyone's buzzing, you know, and pay attention to the performer. Appreciate the performer. A desire for someone to see something or focus on something is bound up in this whole idea of shining a spotlight. You and I really can't put a spotlight on God. In other words, we can't fulfill this call to praise Yahweh. If indeed we truly, only if we desire others to truly seek God, to focus their attention on Him and not us. We can't really boast in God unless, let I me mean, think about it, if we're occupied with the desire for others to see us or to see kind of how we've achieved in life or we've done something uh, good, that's, we, we can't be focusing the spotlight on God. It doesn't happen, right? 
So this is not just a call to say something. The psalmist is not saying, hey, repeat after me. Praise the Lord. Okay, you're done. That's good, right? It's not what he's saying at all. It's a call to orient our entire lives around an all-consuming passion to put the spotlight on God. It's that wholehearted desire that people will see the greatness and the goodness of our God. And I think that probably is where the difficulty lies, isn't it? I mean, getting our, our, our focus off of us, off of uh, our struggles, off of what people might be thinking about us or our agendas, our schedules, and just be in awe of God, of who he is, and shine the light on him. So we might say then that, that praise is boasting in the God whom we truly treasure, the God on whom our affections are truly set in our hearts and our lives, and the God with whom we are truly captivated, consumed, and even whose grace overwhelms us. That's what Psalm 147 is calling us to do. But I think there is one thing that particularly interferes with our praise of God. It's one habit that makes true praise, well, pretty much impossible, and that is Boasting in self, self boasting. See, the problem is the life we live, I think, is kind of naturally uh, caught up with, consumed by, sometimes overwhelmed by what? The life we live. I mean, the life we live and we who live it often are the center of the life we live. Isn't that right? But praise of God, if you think about it, is naturally absent when we're more concerned about how we have been mistreated, misjudged, misunderstood than we are about God's fame and his glory being demonstrated through us. It's not our rights that need to be demanded. It's God's glory that needs to be demonstrated, needs to be decisive in our lives. That's praise. Play, praise flows from the heart of a, a heart that is captivated by God Almighty. The problem is that our hearts are often, often captivated by ourselves, right? And I think we often, uh, maybe we don't realize how much we boast in self. Because self-boasting, well, it takes a multitude of forms, really. Many of them, I think, are kind of disguised as something else. Um, let's think about a few of those. How about just omission? I mean, we fail to give God credit. Put the spotlight on him, right? When we get credited for something, we just kind of go on and that's, that's it. You know, no, man. How about prayerlessness? If we are not acknowledging and demonstrating reliance on God through prayer, then who are we really relying on? Our own skills and abilities. And if that's the case, isn't that self-boasting? In a way, here's one I think that is particularly um, deceptive because it seems like it's just the opposite, and that is self-denigration. Now, think about it for a minute. Self-denigration is what? Well, it's belittling self. It's thinking, I just don't have enough value as other people. I'm a failure, all this kind of stuff, right? We think of self-boasting merely as self-promoting, right? Like, I'm good. I, look at what I've achieved. Look at the wealth, whatever. Self-denigration is just as much self-boasting as is self-promotion. And here's the proof. 1 Peter 5, 6. 
I know you're familiar with this verse. You probably have it memorized. But And God will exalt you in due time if what? You humble yourselves under his mighty hand. But listen to what he says next. This is what we call a participle of means. He is telling you how you humble yourself. This is the means by which you humble yourself. By casting all your cares on him. Because he cares for you. Think about that for a minute. If we refuse to cast our cares on God, or we have an inability to cast all of our cares on God, and we're worrying about this, and we're, that is a mark of pride. That is not a mark of humility. So those who cannot, if we cannot cast our cares on God, what does that show? It shows we're still dependent on ourselves. It's all dependent on us, and we're not matching up. And so we start thinking poorly of ourselves, that we have no value, that we're failures. We're thinking that it all depends on us, and that's the same thing as self-promotion. So it is boasting just the same. Self-denigration is not based on a low self-esteem, as our world has tried to convince us for many years. That's a lie straight from Satan. With the intent, and I think the result being that we continue to live with prideful hearts, refusing to humble ourselves before God by casting all of our cares on Him. We've been learning in a men's group on Wednesday night that grumbling, complaining, um, numbers, chapters 16 and 17, kind of tell us pretty clearly that complaining is rebelling against God. Isn't that one of the most arrogant things we could do? Self-boasting things, right, is rebelling against grumbling and complaining. Is at the heart rebellion against God's sovereignty and His goodness? Well, scriptures, of course, are, I think, full of exhortations about who we are to boast in, right? God and God alone. And it's quite clear in scripture the inappropriateness, the foolishness, even the ridiculousness of boasting in self. Think through some of the passages of scripture, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. I mean, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's, it's not of us. It's not of works. Why? So that we can't boast in ourselves, Right? Romans 1, 28 through 30, actually tell us that boasting in self is a mark of a, de of a depraved mind. Pretty serious, isn't it? And the scriptures go on and on and on. God chose the low and the despised so that we could not boast. And think about Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's life. Think of how serious God takes self-boasting. Nebuchadnezzar walked around, look at all that I have done. And he just boasted in himself. And what happened? God humbled him. He went... Uh, berserk for a while in his life, didn't he? he? He went through the woods as an animal. God takes it seriously. There's no place for self-boasting. It's ridiculous, it's foolish, and God takes it as a serious offense to his glory and his holiness. But we live in a culture that's innately self-boasting, isn't it? I mean, think about it. What do we do in our resumes? What do we do in interviews? I mean, we're told to talk about how good we are, right? How good we can do this job, right? And we boast in our kids. Look at how smart little Susie is, right? Look at how gifted and talented little Johnny is. But no mention that God enabled them and gave them a grace. Is that, that's boasting in self. And this afternoon, if you flip on the TV, you're going to see NFL superstars pounding their chest in arrogant pride that they just made a touchdown or they sacked the quarterback, right? It's embedded in our culture, self-boasting. And I think for that reason, it is difficult sometimes for us to recognize it in our own lives because we are in part what kind of creatures of our culture, right? 
But praise is essential, is it not? Praise from God's people. It's essential, why? Because God is deserving of it. He is the only one that is, right? But I think it's essential for another reason. It's essential in the Christian life for pragmatic reasons. Now, we don't live by pragmatism. I mean, we don't obey God or praise Him or anything because of some kind of benefits we get out of it. We do it because He's God, right? And He is our authority. He is our ruler, our king, and because we love Him. But the Bible presents praise of God both in prescriptive terms, do this, right, praise Him, and in pragmatic terms. The Bible constantly presents praising God as an antidote to the problems that we face in life, the soul issues of life. And think about it for a minute. Bible presents praise as an antidote to anxiety, for instance. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious for what? For anything, right? But instead of that, in other words, place in, in place of anxiety, do this. In every situation, through prayer, petition, with what? Thanksgiving. That's praise. That's a type of praise. Tell your request to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts. And you see what it's telling us? Prayer and praise, thanksgiving, is the antidote to, it's what pushes anxiety out. Because when we do that, the peace of God comes in and takes over and guards our hearts and our minds. It is the antidote to anxiety. You'll see that in so many things. It's the antidote to complaining or discontentment, Philippians chapter 2. It's the antidote for discouragement and depression. Psalms 43 says, I will go to the altar of God, to the God who gives me ecstatic joy. He is the one that gives us joy in praising Him. So the world, you know, it searches for these solutions to these things, these issues, discouragement, depression, anxiety, worry, and all these types of things, right? But they're never going to find the solutions because they don't acknowledge God for who He is and they don't give Him praise. In fact, they boast in self to prop up self-esteem as though that's the solution, but it's never going to work. God's already given us the solution. It's praising Him, bringing Him glory. Now, what about us, though? We're the people of God, right? We know this. So why do we still struggle so often with the same things the world struggles with, discouragement, sometimes worry, sometimes anxiety? Well, we said that praise is a matter of the heart. It's an issue of the heart. And that comes down to our why, doesn't it? Why we praise God from the heart. And then here in, here in verse 1, let's get back to verse 1. The psalmist gives us three reasons for it's good and it is pleasant and it is, it is appropriate. Psalm says, for it is good to sing praises to our God. How many of you have been in a creative writing course or something like that? Anybody? Or maybe just an English class where they kind of discourage the, word, the use of words like good. Because it's not really that descriptive, right? It's kind of a blah, bland, mediocre word. I mean, it doesn't really say much. Think about this. If you were to go to, a, I don't know, a concert, a, a, a concert pianist is performing and you're, you hear, you know, it's a great performance and you leave and someone asks you, well, how was it? How was the concert? That was good. That doesn't tell me anything, does it? It doesn't, certainly doesn't tell me anything about the, 
the technical ability of the performer, the musicality of the performer, it just does, or your appreciation of it, right? It doesn't say a whole lot. But what if you said it was phenomenal? It was incredible, unbelievable. Doesn't that say something about the skill of the pianist that you just listened to and your appreciation of it? So why does the psalmist simply say it is good to sing praises to our God? I mean, doesn't that sort of communicate a lesser degree of being impressed with God just to say good? Why didn't he say it is unbelievable to praise God, sing praises to our God? Well, I think understanding that word good in that context, in that way, might fit English usage, but it doesn't fit, it, it really misses the entire point here. It misses the full meaning of this word good. This word good in the Old Testament, you know the word tov, right? I'm sure Drake has told you this many times. The word tov, it's thematic throughout the entire Old Testament. I think it's used some over 600 times. It's a very important word. And I think that when I say the word good, does your mind kind of wander back to the pages of the Old Testament all the way maybe back to page 1, yeah. right? Genesis 1, where the inspired author of Scripture introduces us to this word tov, good, and he doesn't let us forget it. He uses it seven times in that one chapter. And I think that in Genesis, where it's introduced, and that use of that word tov in Genesis informs us of its meaning in the rest of its thematic use all the way through the Old Testament. We get to Genesis chapter 2, and there is, I think, a very uh, highly informative use of this word good, or tov. God says it is not good for man to what? Be alone, right? To understand what God means by it's not good for man to be alone, you kind of have to read that in context, don't you, of the whole creation story. Think about it for a minute. Genesis 1.28, God tells us what our purpose is here on this earth, why we exist, why we're here, and what is that? We are to multiply, fill the earth, and of course rule over it. What are we to fill the earth with? Well, more people, right? And we know in Genesis 1.26 that all people are created in the image of God. We are his image bearers, reflecting his glory. Therefore, to fill the earth means to fill the earth ultimately with his glory. That's the purpose of mankind. By the way, that purpose has never changed from day one. We may have changed it, but God has never changed that purpose. So when God says it's not good for man to be alone, he's saying that man can't fulfill his purpose in life alone. He can't fill the earth with people who glorify God alone. That's why he created woman. I may have said that wrong. He created woman. Let me just say, he created woman, and together, that is good. Why? Because together they can fulfill their very purpose for existence, to bring glory to God, fill the earth with his glory. So we see that when something is assessed as good, or tov, it's being said that it's functioning as it ought to and fulfilling its God-given purpose. So there's an aspect of this theme of good that speaks to purpose. So when God says, or when the scriptures say that it is good to sing praises to our God, what it is saying is that praise fulfills our purpose. That's why we're here, to bring praise to God. A life not ori oriented around praise, it, 
of God, it, it just can't fulfill the purpose for which it was made. You know, we talk a lot today about the sweet spot. Have you, you heard that a lot? Find your sweet spot in life, right? Find that thing for which you were wired, for which you were made. You know, well, praising God is that sweet spot for all of us. That is the thing for which we were made, that we were, we were created for that very purpose. Praise is not just a good thing to do. It's tov. It is our purpose in life. And those who have rejected God and really don't praise Him because of that, they, they're never going to discover their true created purpose in life. And so really they search for, for meaning, they search for anything to fulfill life. And that's why I think we have such aberrant, immoral behavior in American culture today. Um, and I'll say this very discreetly, so don't get worried, but that is, I think, what this whole trans movement is all about fundamentally in America. Buying into the lies peddled by the movement, uh, the transition movement of finding out, you know, who you really are, who you think you are, and your purpose in life. And it is rampant. And I tell you what, it is not just rampant, but it is geared towards, and it is captivating, and it is capturing our children in this nation. Right now, at uh, the Oregon Health and Science University, one of the main places for these surgeries, if you will, um, there is a 12 to 18 month waiting list just for the consultation for women to transition. Just that one side of the equation. And so many of those are children. Let me tell you this. Praise of God is fundamentally a, a proclamation of who God is, right? Folks, society is in desperate need of God's people to praise Him, to proclaim who He is, and to proclaim that it is good to praise our God. It is our purpose in life. Well, he goes on to say praise is pleasant. Praise is pleasant. And I think that's just a logical conclusion, isn't it, from the first one? I mean, if that is our purpose in life, wouldn't it make sense that it would be kind of pleasant to do if we actually are fulfilling our purpose in life? So that is kind of a logical conclusion, but it does all boil down to what we find our greatest pleasure in, doesn't it? Let's jump back to Genesis one more time in our thinking here, but this time to that notorious chapter 3, right, where Satan comes in and lies to Eve, and his lies draws Eve, his lies draw Eve to thinking that the creation is more pleasant than the Creator. Are bringing him glory through obedience. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, was attractive to the eye, and was desirable for making one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate it. That was in uh, direct defiance of God's command, wasn't it? Praise of God demonstrated through, uh, through obedience, through subjection to God's rule, was not as pleasant to her, it seemed, as was the appeasement of her appetite the appearance of beauty and the acquisition of knowledge. She was totally, sadly mistaken, wasn't she? And I think devastatingly mistaken. What took place, right? The results of that were not pleasant. They were unpleasant. They were painful. They were hurtful. They were devastating. But that same seed of deception 
comes from Satan into our own minds sometimes, doesn't it? That uh, there might be something more pleasant than obeying God. Isn't that why sometimes we're in a group of unbelievers and perhaps their language isn't the best, you know, and uh, they're uh, mocking God's morality based maybe because of their jokes or whatever they're saying. And we're the only one there and we might feel a little awkward, right? But sometimes the awkwardness is not just because we're in that situation, but because we're a little bit reticent to inject God into that, to inject God's morality into that because we're the only one, we're by ourselves. And I think that in that moment, maybe just a brief moment, hopefully a very brief moment, but in that moment, we are thinking that there is, that the praise of man is more desirable at that point than our praising of God and glorifying Him. We want their acceptance. We, We want to be seen as, you know, not confrontational or whatever it might be. But that's all a lie. I mean, praise is the pathway to joy. That is the thing that is the most desirable. Psalm 16:11 says, I experience absolute joy in your presence. You always give me sheer delight. That's what we're supposed to experience in the praise of God. You show, you show me a, a grumpy Christian, and I'll show you, at least in that moment, one who is neglecting praise, right? You know, a Christian who can't seem to rise up out of the trenches of discouragement and depression is a Christian who is trying to do it on their own effort, maybe following the means of the world or whatever, but they've rejected the only means by which you can get out of discouragement, and that is bringing praise and glory to your God. The psalmist goes on and says, praise is appropriate or fitting. I know some of your translations say praise is beautiful, right? Uh, I know that's out there because the word can actually have a dual meaning here, beautiful or fitting and appropriate. And um, you can kind of choose what you think is best as far as the context is concerned. But it is, it is, it is fitting and it is appropriate uh, for the believer to praise, to praise his God. Why? Well, because he's God, of course, but the psalmist in the rest of this whole psalm, which we're not going to get to, don't worry, The rest of the psalm actually gives you reasons why it is good, pleasant, and fitting to praise your God, our God. But we will look at a couple other things. Verse 2, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem and gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. And then if we just jump to verse 6, the Lord lifts up the oppressed but knocks the wicked to the ground. So in verses 2, 3, and then 6, we see that praising the Lord is, well, it's good, it's pleasant, it's fitting. Why? Because the Lord is the one who restores his people, rebuilds Jerusalem, gathers the exiles, and heals the brokenhearted. That's the theme of restoration and healing, prominent in those verses. And we have a saying in our culture, time heals what? All wounds. Is that right? Did I say that right? Time heals all wounds. Well, time does, I think, give us distance between the event that hurt us emotionally or whatever it might be and uh, today. But time is no healer. Many people go all their lives never experiencing healing of their emotional pains, of their, their sorrows. I think more accurately, we might, is the song, do you all remember the song by Don Williams? One of the chorus says, uh, Some broken hearts never mend, 
Some memories never end. There are some hearts that do not mend. Brokenness that doesn't mend. Because time is, is not the healer of the broken heart. If time healed all wounds, all broken hearts would be healed, right? But eventually. But they're not. God is the one who heals our hearts, our brokenness. And he's the only one that can. The world is broken. We have broken hearts at times. We suffer too. But there is no true lasting healing of the broken heart outside of God. There's just not. If God didn't heal our broken hearts, there would be no remedy. Think about that for a minute. What a glorious thought though, right? That God does indeed heal our broken hearts. He does restore lives. He does rebuild ruin that we create many times. That's a statement of God's graciousness, isn't it? His mercy, His kindness, His gentleness, His compassion, and His providential loving care. And for that reason, praising Him is good, pleasant, and fitting. Now, verses 4 through 5 just give us three essential truths that I think concern God's restoration, His healing, and all of this that I think are very important for us to find confidence in. Um, Verse 4, He counts the number of the stars. He names them all. Why in the world would the psalmist put that statement in there? In a discussion on restoration and healing of the broken hearts, he says he counts the stars. (laughs) He names all of them. I think it's to draw our attention, well, to God's, what I've called his incessant knowledge. His knowledge never ceases. He knows everything. He knows everything about us. If he can count the stars and he can name them, doesn't he know everything about us? I mean, they say there's over 100 to 400 billion stars or something like that in our galaxy. And there's over 100 billion galaxies. And I don't know if that's all true or not, but I do know this, that the number of stars is incalculable. They are innumerable, but God counts them, all of them, and he names them, all of them, showing his sovereignty over them, his rulership. How does he do that? I mean, I have trouble remembering my three kids' names. I I do sometimes. But what ceaseless knowledge God has to do that how intimate God's knowledge is of us. And you know, that's good news because he has to know that we're hurting if he's going to go about healing the brokenheartedness of us. So his healing of us and healing of the broken heart is based in his incessant knowledge. He knows it all. But it's also accomplished by his incredible power. Look at verse 5. Our Lord is great and has awesome power and there is no limit to his wisdom. No limit to his wisdom. You know, one of the things, I mean, I'm sorry, I went a little bit too far, is awesome power. Let's stop right there. One of the things that we see in the Old Testament over and over and over in all of the stories is God's omnipotence, isn't it? His limitless power. God always stepping into history and doing things that can't be done. I mean, think about it for a minute. He just spoke and things came into being that weren't there. That doesn't happen. But it did, right? Because that's the power of our God. Um, the parting of the seas into walls of water and the dry land immediately, right, that you can walk on. That defies all the laws of nature. It can't happen. But it did. 
because that's the power of our God. Stories over and over and over in the scriptures. And I know you know this story well. In 1967, the little nation state of Israel was on the verge of annihilation, right, by a, a, a three-tiered conglomerate of Arab nations, Egypt, Jordan, Syria. Within three hours, three hours on a Monday morning, the Israeli Air Force just virtually destroyed the entire Arab Air Force. Within, well, with three main uh, tank battles or battalions, Israel defeated Egypt's army in three days. In less than 24-hour period, Israeli paratroopers captured ammunition heel, and Jordan was forced to retreat and eventually vacate the entire West Bank. In just six days, the war was over, right? And the tiny nation of Israel defeated all three of its powerful Arab enemies, and these types of things, they just can't happen. They don't happen, but they did. That's the power of our God. I tell you what, I, I don't know what's going to happen with Israel right now. Um, and I don't know how close we are to it, but there will come a day when the nations rise up against Israel, uh, God's chosen people, and just as it appears perhaps that they will be annihilated, uh, God will once again intervene. And at that time, he will wipe his enemies off the face of this earth. And all those who dare to raise their arrogant fists up against God and against his people they will be gone. You know, all of these events and so many others, I mean, they demonstrate the power of God. And not just in theory, not just in some theological text either, right? But in daily life, real life, demonstrated decisively in our world, in our real lives, the power of God. And that's the power that God has to heal your hurts, to heal your brokenheartedness. There's no hurt too deep that God can't heal. We know that. Sometimes we're not too sure of it, but it is true. I don't know, maybe, you know, you could have given up on a situation either in your life or in the life of someone you know. Um, and we may not know what God in his providence will do in that situation that we're concerned about and maybe given up on, but I'm not so sure it's appropriate for a believer ever to give up hope in any situation, is it? Because God's awesome power can do what otherwise couldn't be done wouldn't be done finally it wouldn't hurt it wouldn't really do us a whole lot of good if we had an all-powerful God who could do all that if he were not at the same time wise enough to know how best to use his power and that's the third truth verse 5 there is no limit to his wisdom see God does everything in accordance to his wisdom I think we heard something about this in Sunday school today or last night I can't remember but God's restoration of his people, his healing of broken hearts and fixing of situations is not haphazard, and it is not based on our wisdom. It's based on his, and he knows what's best. Sometimes what is best is to delay his restoration and his healing, right? It's his wisdom that determines how long we need to remain brokenhearted for his purposes. So we have come up with some implications of this call to praise the Lord. And one of them, of course, was just this whole concept of what is good. 
for the believer, for all people, because that's what we were created to do. And there are those that you know, I'm sure, in this life who have never discovered that purpose. Some of you who may be listening this morning uh, may be in that ballpark. You've never really fully understood that uh, your very purpose for existence is to praise your God, your Creator, to bring Him glory. And the biblical truth is that you can't. Our lives cannot do that on our own. We cannot bring Him glory. Why? Because, well, the Bible says that we are more than broken. We are in rebellion against our God, our Creator. We have, and by nature, we have sinned and we are sinners by nature. We have violated God in His Word. And in that condition, we cannot bring God glory. We cannot find the purpose of our life, right? But thanks be to God, as Paul says, for his indescribable gift of grace and mercy because in Christ, Christ's death, he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the, the penalty that was demanded by God's holiness, righteousness, and justice. And only by faith in Christ can we ever be forgiven, reconciled, made new to the point where we can actually give God the glory that is due him. If you've not come to that point where you've been reconciled to God through Christ and found your purpose for living, I just implore you this morning not to, not to delay, but to put your faith in Christ alone. So in closing, you know, most of us here probably have placed our, Christ, our faith in Christ, right? I mean, we've been reconciled to God, but maybe somewhere along the way we've, we've sort of lost sight of what our purpose is. Um, Maybe we've grown a little bit silent in that our life, our priorities, all about us is not really orient, oriented around praising the God who created us. And as Jesus talked about, the rocks maybe around us are crying out, bearing witness that a sinful travesty of silence is being committed by us. God is not being praised by our lives. You know, time is coming when we will face severe consequences for praising God already come to a lot of our brothers and sisters right around the world we're going to have to decide whether we will live out praise to God and suffer the consequences or deny him be ashamed of him I think the words of Christ in Mark 8 and 10 should bring a lot of concern to us Jesus says if you deny me before men I will deny you before the father if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. I think now is the time to practice. Before that time comes when we have to suffer for it, now is the time to make it a habit to praise God and to orient our lives around who he is and bringing him praise because he is the God who restores his people. He heals the brokenhearted. And all of that is based on his knowledge, accomplished by his power, excuse me, according to his wisdom and not ours let's pray together Lord we're thankful for uh, who you are and God we do have to co uh, confess that as your people we, uh, we often don't um, truly orient our lives around you because what is deep within us and part of who we are is not always um, a desire for people to see your goodness and your greatness Lord, we pray that we would be the people who um, are able to demonstrate how good it is to praise you.
Lord, let that be the cry of our hearts, that you would be praised and you would be glorified in all that we do and who we are. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.